How can a loving God send people to hell? That's our question today. When Pastor John begins to work on a new series, he will send out topics and passages and possible dates to the teaching team. And he asks us to just send back what might be an uh, interest, what might be a possibility, what are our dates. We may check three or four or five things, send it back to him. Weeks later, we will get the, the finalized schedule. The phrase, how the hell did I get cut stuck with this topic? <laughs> might have crossed my mind. <laughs> I must have indicated some sort of interest, uh, but I don't know what was going through my own mind. I'll trust John with that one and with God. We struggle with this topic. We either completely ignore it or we double down on it or we throw up our hands and say, let's just let God worry about it. Hell makes us uncomfortable. A certain staff member asked today if it would help if he turned up the heat in the auditorium. <laughs> I laughed, but I thought, no, I think the topic alone will do that, so. I wanna ask you this morning for some feedback. Just shout out, if you would, what comes to your mind, just those first images, when you think of hell. Fire, loneliness, rejection. What's that? Foreman? Torment. Torment. Sorry, Jeff. Thank you for that. Torture. Torture. What? Regret. Okay. We may think that the images we just shouted out, and for those of you who think them but you didn't say it out loud, we may think that, that all of those images have been formed through Scripture. But in reality, our culture, uh, media, cartoons, perhaps inaccurate teaching over the years may be things that formed those images and they may not all be an accurate reflection of the teaching of scripture. Kind of like the Christmas story we tell every year. I'm convinced that all the details are in the Bible, right? Such as uh, Jesus was born in a manger. Nope, never mentioned. Mary gave birth the night they got to Bethlehem. Oh, nope, Luke just simply says, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came that she would deliver. Three wise men brought gifts. No number is ever given in Scripture. Animals surrounded Jesus at the nativity. Sorry, animal lovers. No animals are mentioned in the gospel being at the nativity. Angels sang to the shepherds, right? Angels we have heard on high. No. It's recorded that they talked to the shepherds, but singing, nada. So our understanding of hell in much the same way can be picked from our culture and tradition, and we come thinking this is all in the Bible, and it is maybe not all there. So we'll look at some of that today. We're going to begin by listening to one parable that Jesus shares on this topic. And Dina, who oversees our welcome ministry and works with justice, is going to come and read from Luke 16. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 26. Jesus said there was a certain rich man who splendidly was clothed in purple and fine linen 
and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there, longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There, in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tongue of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here. And no one can cross over to us from there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Joshua Ryan Butler, a native of Portland and on staff at Imago Day for a number of years, wrote a book entitled Skeletons in God's Closet. One day, a young man sat across from Josh in a coffee shop and eventually finally got around to the question that he had really come to ask. He said, do you really think God is going to torture billions of people in a barbecue, in a burning barbecue forever? I've been following Jesus, he said, since I was a kid. But the more I think about this image I have of hell, the more God looks like a sadistic torturer. Can such a God really be good? Today wraps up a 10-week series on difficult questions. We have tried our best to look with all honesty at scripture and at the barriers for people both inside the church and outside the church on difficult topics concerning the Christian faith. If you've missed some of those and you think, wow, that does sound like an interesting series, I wonder what other questions they talked about, you can find all the messages in this series on our website. In a recent personal conversation that I had with a young man, He said to me, I cannot help it, but one of the primary images I carry in me about God is that he is an angry, wrathful being. I've struggled with that image. Some of you have shared with me that you too struggle with that image, but I want us to know today that the Bible tells a different story. Is God primarily a wrathful God or a loving God, and where does hell fit into the mix of that? So in our, to answer our broad, our broad umbrella question, how can, an anger, or how can a loving God send people to hell? I thought we would look at two questions. One, who is God? And two, what is hell? So first, who is God? Let's, let's talk about that. Let's think about that together. Is God? A cranky, impulsive judge just scanning the earth, looking, watching for every move to crack down hard when we misstep or we wander off or, God forbid, that we even completely rebel. Is God looking for folks to punish in this life and ultimately for an eternity? One of the books that we recommended for this series, and I really appreciated her approach on this, 
Rebecca McLaughlin says in her book, Confronting Christianity, says that Christianity does serve as a searchlight. God is looking for us, but not as an authority looking for a criminal, but as one searching for someone dearly loved who is lost. Right before uh, Luke 16, where our scripture reading came from, is Luke 15, where Jesus tells parable after parable after parable about lost things, valuable things, lost and then found. Every one of those things lost, all were searched for in great effort, all were found resulting in the greatest celebration and joy, Jesus says, that heaven ever experiences. That's the picture that Jesus paints of God the Father. One who looks for us and searches for us, and when we are lost, comes, finds us, and brings us home. It's really the Old Testament, though, isn't it, that often gets the most credit for an angry God? I've mentioned before that I grew up with an angry dad, and even at a young age, at age six, between home life and church life, I had taken in already that God was my father and far more powerful than my dad. And that was terrifying. Interestingly enough, when I became a teenager and really began to dig into the word, it became the source that began to dismantle the image of an angry God. There are tough passages that can fuel that image, but, if you, if, but only if you take those out of context of the whole. Because the broad scope storyline gives such a fuller picture of God. Wrath is not the primary message that we find. Our next sermon series coming up, one that Mike has pulled together, it's a, it's, I'm excited about it. It's called The Greatest Hits, The Bible on Repeat. And I wanna talk about a repeated theme throughout the Old Testament. There are three places that talk all about the same thing. In fact, Mike this morning in our prayer circle reminded us that this, this verse in Exodus 34 is a verse that is repeated in the Bible more often than any other verse. Let me show you three times just so you get the theme into your heart and mind. Starting with Nehemiah. I didn't put them in proper order, but here they are. Nehemiah 9.17, you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Then from Exodus 34, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. Okay, so get that part. This is God saying this, proclaiming to Moses for the people. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then the psalmist, who all reflects so much and recaps the history of the Old Testament, says, but you are my Lord, and you are merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Then there are stories in the Old Testament, whole books that shine a light on God's intimate engagement with us, God's faithfulness and love, and not just for the righteous, but for the broken, 
Is anybody glad to know that? Yeah, amen, that's right. From Cain, who killed his brother Abel, to Jacob, who cheated people for his own advantage, to Hagar, a slave girl, not seen by people in her culture, but who is the girl who named God Elroy, the God who sees me. To the book of Hosea, all about a prophet whose faithless wife, Gomer, Gomer, had affair after affair after affair, and God said to Hosea, take her back, take her back, take her back, just as I take back my own faithless people. It's just not a picture of an angry God, is it? No, we, we've been duped to think that the Old Testament paints God as an angry God. But this is not a picture of an angry God waiting for people to mess up. This is a God who deals with people every day who are messing up. There's a difference between getting angry and being an angry person. Think with you would for a moment. Think of somebody who is just loving and kind. Maybe one of the kindest and loving persons that you know. When I was thinking about this week, John and, and Kathy Amon came to my mind. They work in our, our prayer ministry and pray with people. They head up an encouragement team for the staff. They love on us. They are just kind and loving people. If someone, though, harmed or threatened their children or grandchildren, my guess is their anger, their wrath would be aroused. Would we then consider them angry people? No. We would consider them loving people who get appropriately angry. I thought of the people, the parents in Uvalde right now, and they are angry because so much evil has just burst into their community and taken their children. Does God get angry? Absolutely. But is he an angry God? The Bible tells a different story. God's anger is not a cranky explosion that we that can startle us. God's angry anger is a metered, focused opposition toward evil. An anger against everything that is like a cancer eating out the insides of humanity. In scripture, God's wrath is focused against such things as oppression of people. That is probably the biggest theme in the prophets. God's wrath is coming against those who oppress others, against racism, as John's hard question looked at in this series. God's anger and wrath turn against such things as lust and greed, which lead to terrible abuses against other, which in today in our culture have led to the billion-dollar porn industry and terrible self-sex trafficking industry. God's anger is turned against, focused, and metered against those things which destroy life. This is not a God who doesn't want people having fun and enjoying life. Quite the opposite. This is a God whose wrath is targeted against degradation, shame, and destruction of people. Who is God? 
God is a loving God who is intent on relationship that brings flourishing both to us individually and through us to community. In Matthew 28, Jesus describes final judgment. And he puts it in the language of separating out sheep and goats. Now, all the sheep and all the goats in his story seem to think they all know Jesus. And to the sheep, as he's separating them out, to the sheep who will be with Jesus in eternity, he says, when you saw the downtrodden, the very least of your brothers and sisters, when you fed them, clothed them, when you visited the sick, the imprisoned, when you gave just a cool cup of water to someone who was thirsty, you did all of that as unto me. So enter my kingdom, which was prepared for you before the beginning of time. And to the goats who would not be with him in eternity, he said, you saw. He said, you saw the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, and lifted not a finger to help. I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. Who is God? A father who loves deeply and faithfully every human being on the planet. He is a God who brings flourishing to us individually and through us to community. He is also a God who loved us all in such a way that he took upon himself all the justice that was to be meted out for sin. He took that on and through Jesus invites us to walk the journey home to Shalom. And on that journey to care for others and bring others with him. Okay, I hope I've given a picture of what the scriptures describe as a loving God. Next, we're going to turn our attention to the harder, probably harder part of the question. What is hell? One of the caricatures or misnomers that we have about hell is that it's God's personal underground torture chamber. That's what Micah was struggling with that day when he sat across from Josh Butler. Thankfully, the Bible tells a different story. Two words in scripture that I want to focus on today, most often translated as the word hell, were literal places on on the earth. In the Old Testament, it was a place called the Valley of Hinnom. And in the New Testament, that very same place, these are two names, just in Hebrew and one in Greek, in the New Testament, it was a place called Gehenna. And when Jesus referred to those places, it was not, or to that place, it was not a cavernous hole deep in the bowels of the earth. If Google Maps had existed at that time, you could have typed in a a name and it would have been given directions to a literal location. I guess you could say literally it was hell on earth. And it was was located in Jerusalem's backyard, just outside the city gates of Jerusalem. The, The Valley of Hinnom had two primary associations. First century Jews knew it was a place of idolatry. Their ancestors had gone to the valley, to that location, 
to cheat on God. There they bowed down to other gods, idols that had been erected by other nations and, and uh, pagans of their time, and that they began to bow down in that valley to these other gods, other lovers, as scripture calls it. That's one thing that was associated with the Valley of Hinnom. It was also known as a place of great injustice. Terrible acts occurred in that place. They practiced child sacrifice. Imagine killing your own child upon an altar to please another god. They practiced divination, sorcery, consulted with mediums and spiritists. The Valley of Hinnom came to symbolize two things, a broken relationship with God and injustice to people. Christianity's uh, critics, some of, some of our critics, would say that a God, a, a religion that has a God who judges and punishes will produce followers who do the same. Don't buy that. Because it is worth noting if you read the story that every time Israel turned away from God, the result was never a more peaceful society, but always a more brutal society. What does the Valley of Hinnom teach us about hell? Three observations from Josh Butler that I thought were excellent. It says that first, it teaches us that idols are cruel. God is a faithful, loving husband who cares gently and well for his spouse and for his children. Idols, on the other hand, become abusive lovers who seduce with flattering words and false promises and ultimately enslave and destroy. So hell is a place of cruelty. Second, the fires in this valley, I want us to really hear this, are lit by human hands. Fires there in that valley, and it was dark and smoky. They were lit for two reasons, as acts of a devotion to other idols they bowed to and to brutally devour children. The fires in hell are lit by human hands. Hell was not a place that God sent people to, but did everything in his power to warn against going to the Valley of Hinnom to light those fires. In Jesus' day, the same location, as I mentioned, was called Gehana, and it was the, basically the city dump. Again, it was hot and smoky and smoldering. And fire was part of the sanitation process back in that day to deal with all the trash and the refuge, create, refuse created by the community. Third observation, hell was outside the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem in Hebrew means the shalom of God, the beautiful, abundant, flourishing of life when God in all creation are an intimate, right relationship. Scripture calls heaven the new Jerusalem. And when the new Jerusalem comes, nothing will be allowed there that degrades, shames, or destroys. It will be life as it was created to be. 
everything that happens in hell, that happened in the valley, that happened in Gehenna, opposes shalom. People went to the valley of Hinnom choosing their own way. It was by choice. They went to the valley. They, they had heard God's way and turned against it and said, yeah, I think I'll live differently than that. I think I'm going to go over here. These, these people serving other gods seem to have more success in life. So I'm turning aside. I'm headed over there. And everything there was against shalom. And they did it to devastating cost to their families and their community. Years prior in Exodus 30, these words were spoken. God said, today I've given you the choice between life and death, giving you the choice between blessing and curses, and now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. And oh, the scripture says, oh, that you would choose life so that your descendants, you and your descendants might live. Hell is a place that represents and exists both past, present, and future. Right now, hell and heaven are in essence intermingled together on the earth. Jesus brings that forth with his parable on the wheat and the tares. We cannot separate them right now, but he promises they will not coexist forever. To allow hell to remain in Jerusalem it's like asking the doctor to heal your body, but oh, would you just leave the cancer inside? Like asking for light to come without casting out darkness, asking for restoration while destruction, our actions continue to destroy and to destruct. They're completely contradictory. They cannot coexist forever together. And in Butler's work, hell is, he argues, and makes a biblical case for Hell basically is the containment of sin. It's not a dark torture chamber in the bowels of the earth. It is God's containment of all that works against shalom. Where God says, you can exist there and come no further. In the Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite series, sorry if it offends you and you don't like it, but it's one of my boys and my favorites, um, in that, in the books, in the books, in the movie, when Gandalf and those in the Fellowship of the Ring are running through the mines of Moria with the Balrog chasing at their heels, Gandalf the Wise turns around, pounds his walking stick into the ground, and he roars, you shall not pass. He set a boundary. If you know the story, it included him sacrificing himself, but he would not let evil ravish his friends. Jesus has set a boundary on evil, and it will one day be completely contained therein, unable to pass. Is hell a torture chamber? where God says, enough with you, off to a place I've designed for you to suffer for eternity. I believe the Bible tells a different story. Dina read the parable of Jesus in the book of Luke, this conversation between Abraham, the father of, the, of our faith, and a rich man calling out from hell. 
We could spend a whole sermon on that parable. I wish we could. You know, I started out regretting that I had to preach one series on hell and almost wish we were doing a whole series. There's so much to say, so much to cover. But what I want us to notice for our topic today, and yes, this is a topical series, not an exegetical one. I want us to notice what Abraham calls the rich man. He calls him son. He doesn't call him fool, disappointment, or idiot. He calls him son. Heaven's attitude towards those in hell is still one of care, still one of family devotion, but it is an identity the rich man rejected. He's named in this parable with his chosen identity, rich man. With care in his voice, Abraham says there's a chasm set between there and here that cannot be crossed. Hell is containment. Did God send the rich man there? C.S. Lewis says there are only two kinds of people. Those in this life who say, God, thy will be done. And to those who at the end of time, God, or at the end of life, God says back to them, thy will be done. And if you prefer the burning trash heap to shalom, a valley of idolatry and injustice to flourishing, you may have your preference. This is not a God sending a son or daughter to hell. It is a son or daughter of heaven refusing the invitation to come home. Multiple opportunities, but at death, a door closes. A boundary is set. What is hell like? This place of choice containment. You mentioned some of the words that scripture does mention. There are words such as misery, torment, anguish. They are scriptural descriptions. There has been a flurry of study among respected scholars in the last several decades exploring what does the Bible teach about hell. And there are a growing number of respected scholars basing this is what you need to hear and always listen for, basing their study on scripture, original languages, early and consistent church writings who believe that souls in hell at some point will cease to exist. This is called annihilationism or conditional immortality. Hear me out. I want to explore this with you today because many of you are already reading about it, listening to sermons or podcasts. I've heard discussion, and I want us to just look at the topic. I have not studied it in great depth, but I, what I have read from scholars such as two of my favorite, John Stott and N.T. Wright, this is a worthy consideration of what the Bible teaches. This is not a free pass approach where all of a sudden I can say, oh, I'll live however I want because as soon as I die, I'm going to cease to exist. This group of scholars is not teaching that the Bible supports an immediate cessation where people skip judgment. 
Conditional immortality is based on an understanding of Scripture, not sentiment. There are many scriptures, and you can listen. I invite you to listen to our podcast this week. Mike and I will be on with Josh, and we'll explore some of the other scriptures. But let me just mention one that they often, that those in, who have done this study lift up, our beloved John 3.16. It promises eternal life to those who believe in Jesus, meaning, therefore, that those who do not place their faith in Jesus will not have eternal life. This may be a more merciful understanding of Scripture, that suffering souls will not suffer for infinity, but it is still a sad and grievous end of existence. The long-held definition by the church of hell, you could probably, several of you I'm sure could say it, is what? Separation from God. That's the longest definition of hell that we have found. The question is, therefore, if God is the source of life and hell at its core is separation from God, how can life be sustained from its source? There is no clear word in Scripture on how long it would take for life to cease. Gollum from the Lord of the Rings also comes to mind. A hobbit who became less and less a hobbit as his obsession with that ring of power became everything to him. He became a grotesque shadow of who he was created to be. To miss out on God's presence and peace in this broken world is sad, but to miss out on an eternity where all that is good and true and beautiful is restored and flourishes where no pain, no rejection, no loneliness, no sadness exists, only shalom, to lose all of that and instead slowly cease to exist is a tragedy. And it is one that God wishes for no one. Second Peter 3, 9 says, God is patient with us, wanting no one to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Does one sermon on this topic cover all the hard questions? Absolutely not. There are so many things to continue to explore. Like, what about those who have not heard the gospel and will not before they die? What about those who have been abused by people claiming to be Christ followers so badly that they cannot find their way to God in this life. In last week's podcast featuring David Greco, Josh Sharp, uh, Emily Rocky, and Hannah, David, I think it was, who re-emphasized God just doesn't fit in any box. And I'm gonna tell you this morning, this topic doesn't either. This is not me trying to wrap, wrap it up in a nice box with a pretty bow. Okay, so I encourage us To not do that, not put God in a box, not put this topic in a box. Because Jesus indicates in several of his teachings that at the end of life as we know it, there's just going to be a lot of surprises. We're going to be surprised who's around the table and maybe who's not around the table. 
But here's the bottom line. You can be absolutely sure that God is not capricious, volatile, or an angry God, but that he is loving, consistent, and just. I promise you God will get this right. God will get this right. The question is, will we? At the cross, God did everything in his power to bring us home safely. If you're here this morning and you have not turned your face toward Jesus, I encourage you to do so. He paid a debt we all owe, and he invites us to journey with him that we might flourish and help other people in our community to flourish as well. He invites us into his shalom. Today, if you have questions, if this has created angst for you, questions for you, please grab any pastor on staff or give us a call this week. Don't let it just fade back into the place that you ignore it. Let us help talk it out, work it out. You can also meet with people who are there to pray for you outside these uh, sanctuary doors and to the left, always for anything that you would want to pray about. On the night that uh, Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. I invite you to take your cups of communion. And he bro- as he broke it, he looked at his disciples that he loved and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the sins of many. And he passed it and he said, this is for you. Take and eat. Lead us in worship, Seth.